The title for our lesson is Table Tyrant Tower Tongues. All right, let's just read to begin with chapter 9. You know, poor Noah. Oh, my goodness. Such a righteous man, such a godly life, and then he blew it in his old age. Be careful, ladies. Because sometime after the flood, he became a husbandman, grew a vineyard. Now, that takes a while, so it wasn't immediately after he got off the boat. It took a while to grow his vineyard, and then what did he do? Got drunk one night, got drunk. And his son Ham came into the tent and saw his nakedness and uh, kind of enjoyed it a little bit too much and went out and told his brothers and kind of a gossipy thing. And anyway, so the Lord spoke through Noah to, he gave a prophecy through Noah to his sons. But he skipped Ham, didn't talk about Ham, but he placed a curse on Ham's son Canaan. So that's what I want to read to you. Start. Let's start in... Uh, Verse 24, it says, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. I don't know why he cursed the son instead of Ham, except somebody said that the the men that went on the ship, the sons were righteous. He couldn't curse a righteous son, so he cursed his son. And then I got to thinking, you know, the worst curse to me would be if someone cursed my children. So I don't know. I can't really explain that. But he did place the curse on Canaan. He said, and cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. All right, now skip over and look at chapter 10. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and unto them are the sons born after the flood. Now he goes on. In this chapter, Moses does to give us what's called the table of nations. That's part of our uh, lesson title, table. This is the table of nations. And then he talks about the sons of Japheth, verse 2. Japheth had seven sons, and it talks about their different names, etc. And I just wanted you to notice verse 5. It says, and by these were the isles of the Gentiles. That's the very first time in the Bible that we read of the word Gentiles. The sons of Japheth actually became they they moved out to Europe if you're of European ancestry you would be a descendant of Japheth like me Javan one of his seven sons was the progenitor of the Greeks and another son Tyrus became the uh, ancestor of all the Romans so the Greek empire the Roman empire they all came from Japheth and then you know from Japheth people from Europe people moved over to America and then South America and Canada. So he said he would enlarge Japheth. So Japheth's descendants have actually covered more of the world. The prophecy came true, more of the world than the other sons. Also, some of his sons like, you see, uh, Magog and Madai and Tubal and Meshech, they went into Russia, Moscow and Tobosk and some of those places. So Russians, that's a big area, isn't it? Okay, so that was uh, Japheth. And then look at verse 6. He talks about the sons of Ham. And interesting one there is Canaan. You see Canaan? He's the one that the, the curse was on. He had six sons. And interestingly, the, the, the uh, Table of Nations gives us a lot of information about the sixth son of Cush. And his name was Nimrod. And because there's a parenthetical five verses about Nimrod, we can pick up right away the fact that this guy's going to be important. So let's read about Nimrod, starting at verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, 
which actually means against the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. He is the mastermind behind the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel and the, and the Tower of Babel. I call him the tyrant of the tower. There's two more of our T's, the tyrant of the tower. And it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and then it lists the other cities that he conquered or, or built up in the land of Shinar, which is lower Mesopotamia, uh, Babylonia. It's where Abraham came from, Ur of the Chaldees that area, near the Tigris and Euphrates. And also he built four cities in Ashur. You see verse 11? Ashur became Assyria. So he was the first king of Babel and Assyria, which is interesting. The Assyrians actually say that their founder was a man by the name of Nimus or something like that. I've got it in my notes. But it came from Nimrod. So they, they understand that Nimrod was their founding father. All right, um, and then that's the end. There's other sons there, etc. Skip over to verse 21. This begins to tell us about Shem. Now, Shem is listed last of Noah's three sons in this table of nations because, not because he was the youngest son. Ham was the youngest son. Japheth was the oldest. But Shem is mentioned last because of the fact that it would be from his descendants that the Messiah would come. You know, Abraham was a Shemite and... So the rest of the, the Old Testament is actually about the descendants of Shem. If you look at chapter 11, we pick up on Shem again somewhere in the middle of the... Okay, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. So actually the whole rest of the Old Testament focuses in on the descendants of Shem. So that's why he's mentioned last. But we read, if you look at uh, one of the sons of Shem was Eber. See that in 21? the father of all the children of Eber. Now, Eber is interesting because that's where we get the name Hebrew. Hebrew, Eber, and Abraham was called a Hebrew, even though he was a Gentile. <laughs> interesting, right? He was a Gentile to begin with. Everybody was a Gentile to begin with. He would start the, the nation of Israel, but he was called an Hebrew, Hebrew because he was a descendant of Eber. All right, another one to look at interesting one is he had two sons in verse 25 one was named Pegleg <laughs> I always think of that when I see his name Peleg and he it says that during he had another son too but it was in Peleg's days that the earth was divided so that is when the tower of Babel incident happened and the nations I mean the people were divided they were all together there in the land of Shinar to begin with but they were divided during the days of Peleg because that's when the Lord sent the miracle of the confusion of languages and the people spread out according to their languages. Okay, now let's read the account of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language. Of course they were. They all came out of Noah's family. They all spoke the same language, which was probably Hebrew. And of one speech. Verse 2, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, from Ararat... And they went to the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to. It's funny, isn't it? Go to. <laughs> go to, let us 
Build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down. It's funny. They want to go up, up, up. He had to come down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded, and the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. And here's God talking to himself again, the Trinity. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. That means they stopped building it. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord there did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Okay, Genesis 10 and 11. I was going to skip them in our Christological study, but I decided that they are too important. Couldn't skip them. We need to talk about them because they do reveal to us the history of what transpired between the time of Noah, who God singled out to become the father of the post-flood world, and Abraham, who God singled out to become the father of a very special nation called Israel. So without these two chapters, we would not know what happened in that period of time. We wouldn't know how Noah's prophecies that God spoke through him, that we read. We wouldn't know how those prophecies were fulfilled without that table of nation. We wouldn't know about the origin of nations. We wouldn't know about the origin of languages. Why are there so many? Do you know there's some 7,000 languages and dialects spoken in the world today? Where did all those languages, you know, where did they originate? Why don't we all speak the same language? That would be nice, wouldn't it? It sure would be. We wouldn't know the origin of the whole Babylonian world system that has spread its tentacles throughout the world and will become very prominent during the seven-year tribulation in the last days, Revelation 17 and 18. That whole system began in Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis. It won't end until the book of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18. The salvation history of mankind is not only the account of Jesus versus Satan, It is also what we could call a tale of two cities, to rob a phrase, to rob a book title. There is the city of man, which is epitomized in in the Babel of chapter 11, which later on became what? Babel became Babylon, right? Babylon. And there's the city of God. What is the city of God on earth? New York? (laughs) Los Angeles? San Diego? Uh, no, the other one up there, San Francisco. Oh, I'm sorry if you came from San Francisco, but it's a wacko city. <laughs> and it's not even Chicago, is it? <laughs> Where I came from. The, the city of God is Jerusalem. You all know that. So we have two cities, city of man, Babel, city of God, Jerusalem. Babylon is the spiritual city of sin who rides gaudily, ostentatiously, like a whore, throughout the scripture. On the back of the great red dragon, Satan, she's full of self-love and Christ-hatred and is portrayed as the great whore in Revelation 17.1. God's words, not mine. For thousands of years, she has used her seductions to lure the kings of the earth while she has become drunk with the blood of the saints, killed many, many Christians. However, the good news is that she will not endure forever. 
She's prominent yet in the world today, but she won't last forever. Both Babylon, the anti-God world system, and Babylon, the anti-God religious system, will fall. Babylon is fallen, fallen. Why does it say twice? One is the world system, one is the religious system. They will fall in the end times, in the tribulation, while Jerusalem will be the Lord's throne for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom, and then the new Jerusalem will be the eternal city of God. That is where we will eternally live, in the new Jerusalem. Well, chapter 10, Moses tells us these are the generations of the sons of Noah because it was from those generations, the sons of Noah, that the nations divided in the earth after the flood according to their new languages. It's interesting, I thought, remember how we talked about all the threes of creation? It's interesting that the world's entire population is divided by God into three sections that relate to Noah's three sons. So the truth seems, that truth seems to demonstrate, again, the Lord's triunity. Not only are, are we, created in his image, triune persons, because we are one, but we consist of body, soul, and spirit, but every person has descended from one of Noah's three sons. Of course, they, you know, over the years intermingled, but we can go back to three sons. So we're one humanity, but we come from three original humans. So again, that's like humanity is another trinity in unity. Again, testifying to our creator. Well, there were 14 nations that developed from Japheth, his seven sons. I already told you the word Gentiles appears for the first time there. There were 30 descendants that descended from Ham. So initially it looked like Ham was going to be larger than Japheth and you know, prove false God's prophecy because he said Japheth would enlarge. But you have to give God time. Eventually, his prophecy came to pass because Japheth did enlarge more than Ham. Ham's descendants moved primarily south to Africa and west to Arabia. Five of his sons settled in Arabia. And eventually, they did move further into China. So that prophecy came to pass. And also, it did. One of his sons was Canaan. Remember the one the curse was on? It did come to pass that the Canaanites became servants to the Shemites and to the Japheth, whatever, the sons of Japheth. What would you call them? Japhethites. Japhethites. So anyway, that part of the prophecy also came to pass. Now, okay, Shemites, there's a list of 26, 26 nations that came from Shem. And of course, they basically stayed in the Middle East. They didn't go too far. So Shem was the progenitor of, of course, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, also the Arabs and the Syrians. So let's consider how many that is. There were 14 from Ham, 30 from Japheth, and 26 from Shem. So how, how many is that total? Anybody do that in their mind? No? It's 70. The table of nations consists of ten, uh, 70 descendants of Noah through his three sons who became the initial nations of the world. All right. Now, Noah, I mean not Noah, um, isn't it strange that he lived to be 950 years old and he only had three sons? That is strange when you think about it. God did that on purpose, didn't he? But his sons had more daughters and, and children. But for some reason, God wanted to only list 70 in chapter 10. Why? Why only 70? Well, we didn't know the answer until Deuteronomy, of all places, 
And Moses explained the reason for the table of nations consisting of 70. Remember, there were how many Israelites, how many in Jacob's family? Remember Jacob? His name was changed to Israel. How many Israelites left the promised land to go to Egypt because there was a famine and during the days of Joseph? 70. Jacob's family consisted of 70 people. And then many, many years later, after they greatly multiplied and under Moses, they returned to the promised land, Moses said this. This is in Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 and 8. He said, remember the days of old when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam which happened at the time of Babel, by the way, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So he knew, of course, how many would be in Jacob's family initially, 70. And so he set the nations, which happened many, many centuries ahead of time before that, but he set the nations to correspond with the initial number of Jacob's family. Interesting. And ever since that time, the number 70 or the number 7 has been affiliated with Israel. We have discovered that in our study over the years of the Bible. The exalted status of the Sabbath on the seventh day is critical to the Jews. There are seven God-ordained feast days for Israel. The ordination of the Jewish priests took seven days. The lampstand or the menorah in the temple consisted of seven golden branches. The walls of Jericho and fell after the Israelites encircled it seven times on the seventh day with seven priests blowing seven trumpets. <laughs> and the walls came a-tumbling down. The great 70 weeks prophecy. God decreed that his program for Israel would be completed in 70 weeks of years. Her entire history can be demonstrated to consist of an amazing framework of successive cycles of 70 weeks of years, 490 years. 70 elders were appointed by Moses to lead Israel. The Jewish Sanhedrin Council consisted of 70 religious rulers. There were 70 scholars who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek called the Septuagint. Israel's time of captivity in Babylon was how long? 70 years. The Lord Jesus sent out 70 Jewish disciples in pairs to witness of him. Jerusalem and the temple were both destroyed in what year? 70 AD. When we get into the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, when God is again working with Israel, we see sevens all over the place, don't we? There were, well, it's seven years. There were seven seal judgments, will be, will be seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, seven angels blowing seven trumpets, blah, 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 blah. Sevens again, all over the place. Do you get the picture? All right, so with all the 70s that are affiliated with Israel, you know, I am not going to see most of you until next year, New Year. What will next year be? 2018. I cannot help but wonder if something special is going to happen concerning Israel in the year 2018. Why do I say that? Yes. Next year will be her 70th birthday. Rebirth. She was reborn again in 1948. You do the math. I don't know. Makes me wonder. Makes me get excited because if he's going to start working with Israel again, guess what that means for the church? Woo! <laughs> 
Now, although this is a study on Old Testament Christology, uh, what we find is that along with all the types and the pre-incarnate appearances and the covenants and the messianic prophecies concerning Christ, there are also a great many Old Testament types and prophecies concerning the Antichrist. Many of the main characters of scripture are a type of the Antichrist. Pharaoh of Egypt, Antiochus Epiphanes, oh, there's a whole Catalamer, we'll get to him one day, all kinds of types of the Antichrist. We've already looked at two of them, Cain and who was the one last week, the evil Lamech. He was a type of the Antichrist. Well, today we come to the third picture in the Bible of the Antichrist, and he is none other than Cush's sixth, that's appropriate, sixth son, Nimrod, that parentheses we looked at in verse in chapter 10. His name comes from a verb meaning let us rebel. Let us rebel. You know, there's let us. Remember the people building let us, let us, let us. Well, it started with Nimrod, <laughs> who his name is let us rebel. And that name right there suggests the lawless one, doesn't it? The, one of the names for the Antichrist. Now, why would a father or a mother name their child, let us rebel? Would you do that? I, would, I wouldn't do that. I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know why, except maybe Cush, who was from Ham's family, son of Ham, thought it wasn't unfair, that it was unfair for his side of Noah's family to be the cursed ones, that we'll have to be servants to the other ones. Didn't like that, so let us rebel. I'm going to teach my son Nimrod to be mighty and powerful so he will never, they won't ever serve anyone else. Other people will serve them. So I, I can only guess why he would name his son uh, Let Us Re Rebel. You know, maybe, I got to thinking, maybe the Hamites or the, I mean, the Cushites or the Canaanites were also angry at God for having drowned all their ancestors, their forefathers. You know, so whatever. There's a, there's a mentality of rebelling against God going on here to give your son that name. Well, whatever the reason, he began to be a mighty one. The word mighty is mentioned about Nimrod four times in the scripture. One of them happens to be over in one of the Chronicles, First Chronicles, I think. But he began to be mighty in the earth. Now, the word began suggests that he had to work at rising to a position of power and strength. Similarly, remember when we studied the book of Daniel, we found out that initially the Antichrist is the little horn. He's not mighty at the beginning. And he had to work to his position of mightiness in, in the uh, revived Roman Empire. And he did that initially by his charisma and flatteries and deceit. And then later on by force to gain his eventual position as the ruler of the final Gentile kingdom. This is the Babel is the first Gentile kingdom. The Antichrist will be the last. Two times in Genesis 10, 9, we read that Nimrod was a mighty, mighty hunter before the Lord, which actually means against the Lord. The word hunter indicates that eventually he took up the sword to conquer. His hunt wasn't just for wild beasts. Now, this is after the flood, for, so beasts are now carnivorous. <laughs> They're not just little herbivores. So he went for wild beasts, but it also indicates that he, he uh, hunted for men. He hunted for men to help him establish a kingdom for himself, not for God. Now, any of the godly descendants of Noah 
would have resisted Nimrod and his plans to rebel against God and build this tower in his own religion and his own way. So they would have automatically become Nimrod's enemies, and perhaps he even hunted them, which would again foreshadow the Antichrist, who will lead that one-world confederation, not only in open rebellion of God, but in open rebellion of God's people. And he will martyr many, many of the Lord's people, the Jews and those who come to Christ during the tribulation in the last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. The word for mighty, as I said, used four times of Nimrod, can also be translated as chief. He attained a place of chief prominence among men. He brazenly advanced his own proud plans and purposes in open rebellion and defiance of God's plans, which, again, is exactly what the Antichrist will do. He's called the king of fierce countenance. It tells us he will do according to his will. He will exalt himself. He will magnify himself above every god. It says that he will speak blasphemous things against the Lord God, and he won't regard the God of his fathers. Nimrod didn't either, didn't regard. And it says he'll have, uh, the Antichrist will have no honor for the desire of women, which we know speaks of of Christ. This is all, and it says he will magnify himself above all. This is what Nimrod was like. So he is definitely a type of the Antichrist. He's also a king. It says in 1010, it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So he was the king of Babel. You know who else is called the king of Babel? Besides Nebuchadnezzar, who was another type of Antichrist until he got saved. But the Antichrist is referred to as the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14.4. The Antichrist uh, will rule over a one-world religious system and a one-world commercial system, which is exactly what began in Babel. It was a city. They wanted a one world. Everybody was there. They got off the ark, some maybe 3,000 people. They say that by the time of Babel, it was maybe about a century after the flood. And so those who do calculations with numbers and everything about how many children they might have had within 100 years, they think there might have been about 3,000 people on the earth, and they all settled in the land of Shinar there by the Tigris and Euphrates, you know, under, under Nimrod. So there weren't people on the rest of the planet yet. So he had a one-world system and a one-world religion that he was going to develop through that tower. Okay, the first kingdom mentioned in the Bible, satanically inspired kingdom of Nimrod. Interestingly, there were four cities in Shinar and four cities in Assyria. And by the way, the founder is Ninus. That's who the Assyrians say the founder of Assyria was Ninus, N-I-N-U-S, which is another name for Nimrod. I thought it was interesting that the two lands of the first kingdom under Nimrod were Babylon and Assyria because those were the two, those were the two later empires that God actually used to chasten his own people when they began to follow in the way of Babylon and serve the gods and the goddesses that originated in Babel. He used Assyria to carry away the northern kingdom of Israel, and he used Babylon to take into captivity the southern kingdom of Judah, didn't he? Interesting. Well, by the time of Genesis 11, now, Actually, Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel incident occurred before the Table of Nations. So chronologically, chapter 11 comes first. Chapter 10 is the result of the confusion of languages and the divisions of the families. 
that it eventually became the nations. So, as I said, about a century has now passed since the flood. The people, when they got off the boat in, in Ararat, they moved eastward, settled in the land of Shinar in lower Mesopotamia. Now, the settling of the people in one place seems innocent enough, doesn't it? Seems like, okay, no problem. But it wasn't. It wasn't innocent. It was in defiance and rebellion against God because God told Noah twice, Genesis 9-1 and Genesis 9-7, that they were to do what? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Not settle in one place, but spread out, spread out. The idea for building both a city and a tower likely came from Nimrod, Mr. Let Us Rebel, who, as Satan had done with Eve, may have implied to the people God's selfishness in wanting them to scatter across the earth because God knew that they would be weaker and they would be easier to control if they were decentralized. We know that the motive of the people themselves was to consolidate. So when they heard this from Nimrod, they, they agreed with it. They didn't want to spread out. They wanted to consolidate in a a centralized place, to make a name for themselves. Verse 4 of chapter 11. So they wanted to make a name for themselves, but Nimrod, of course, was all about power. He was all about making a name for himself. And actually, he succeeded, because who are we talking about today? Nimrod. Nimrod. There's so many people in the world who do crazy things nowadays just to make it, you know, even kill themselves as long as their picture is going to be on the TV and everybody's going to become familiar with their name. So many people have wanted to make a name for themselves instead of glorifying the name above every name. Well, there was a common language of the pre-Babel earth, and that did enable Noah's descendants to communicate effectively with one another, and consequently they were able to advance rapidly and develop a society and a civilization, you know, very quickly. And they were, you know, their brain cells were not as devolved as ours. They were very smart back then, much, much smarter than we are. So they could have, they could have really done some amazing things. You ever see the pyramids? They did do some amazing things. Uh, the first united decision regarding the Babel building project was to develop, develop a brick-making industry. They said, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. They used kilns to do that. So the build, people began to build a city using bricks, bricks. Now, there's a logical reason for that because there weren't any big stones in the plain of Shinar and there wasn't a lot of wood there. It's a kind of a desert plain. So logically, let's make bricks. It was good soil for making bricks. But symbolically, there's a lot of symbolism in the fact that they wanted to make their city and their tower from brick because bricks are man-made. Stones are God-made, okay? Symbolically, and actually, in reality, their city and their tower were built by substitution. The world builds its civilizations and its religions by many substitutes. There are substitutes for God, lots of them. Substitutes for Christ, lots of false Christ. There are substitutes for this precious book, the Bible. There are substitutes for morality and righteousness, on and on and on. But when God builds his kingdom, he uses stones by the way, have you ever been to Jerusalem? What do you see everywhere? Stones. Everywhere. everywhere. Yes, thank you, Karen. Stones. It's a stone city. When God builds his kingdom, he uses stones. Christ is the chief corner stone. The apostles were the foundation stones. And the church saints are the 
We build up, you know, on the, he builds up on the foundation. We are the living stones. God's eternal city, if you read about it, the new Jerusalem is going to assist, consist of all kinds of precious bricks, <laughs> precious stones. And that contrasts very starkly to the city of man represented by Babel, which is all brick. Nothing permanent comes from hardened clay and slime. You know what the slime was? That's what they used for the mortar. It's actually tar or asphalt, bitumen. But nothing permanent. You know, remember the, the image of, that Nebuchadnezzar built? In the last stage of it consists of baked clay mixed with iron. Did it last? No. What, what smited it? <laughs> A stone. <laughs> the stone cut out without hands. The Lord Jesus Christ came, hit it on the feet, and the whole thing crumbled. Nothing permanent ever comes from bricks or hardened clay and slime. Well, after determining to create a brick-building industry, the leadership committee of Nimrod's council, I guess they got together, they made a second decision. They were going to build both a city and a tower, a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. By building a great city, they were reaching for political unity. By building a tower to heaven, they were seeking religious unity. Now, of course, behind all this, first humanistic United Federation, and this is the beginning of humanism, do something to worship self, to elevate self, and it was all a work system, wasn't it? We're going to work our way up to heaven. We're going to do it our way. Behind all this was the great anti-God Nimrod, just as there will be the great anti-God rebel behind the last humanistic United Federation. The Antichrist. But behind both Nimrod and Antichrist is really who? Greatest anti-God rebel of all time. Nimrod apparently got the people excited about his building project by giving them a vision. You know, give the people a vision. That's a good thing. He gave them a vision, except this was a bad vision, of a great city and a religious center. He was defying. You know, you, you think that's innocent, but it was defying God's command to scatter. He wanted to gather the people in his cities, his eight cities, where they were under his control and and he could be their king. And by their evident excitement, he was apparently quite a motivational leader. You think the Antichrist is going to be charismatic and motivational and inspirational and everybody's going to swoon and say, oh, he's so eloquent, he's so wonderful, he's so suave, and they're all going to be deceived, aren't they? Well, the tower the people planned to build was to serve as the main focus of the city. It was to symbolize their unity and their strength. It served as the center of their social, political, and religious lives, and the structure itself is what archaeologists call a ziggurat, or ziggurat, however you pronounce it. It was like a pyramid, except that its steps were more like steps, so you could actually, it was more inclined as you went up, so you could actually walk up to the top. And what they would put at the top was a shrine. Now, Nimrod may initially have used God. You know, let's build this so we can worship God. But it really wasn't about God, was it? It was about him. And eventually it became, the, the initial shrines were shrines to worship the zodiac. You know, it was occultic. They became stargazers and they, you know, they, they worshiped the stars and the sun and the moon and all that. But in time, the shrines were dedicated to a whole host of gods and goddesses. So the first united let us of the people dealt with their building material. The second let us dealt with their united decision to build both a city and a tower, a religious center. Their third united let us revealed the motive behind all of this, everything they wanted to accomplish. 
in their deliberate and united and brazen defiance of God's command to scatter, to multiply, they said, let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You see, I think there was an element of fear in the people. Like I said, there may be 3,000 of them. There's not a lot. And the animals that came off the earth had a hundred years to grow. <laughs> and some of them were dinosaurs. And, and I think there was fear among the people. And they felt safer and more secure in, and had more power in their you know, numbers if they stayed together. You can understand that, right? But what they were not, do- well, number one, they were not obeying God. Number two, they were not trusting God because they were afraid to venture forth into the unknown in smaller groups where they would totally have to trust God to guide them and to preserve them. <laughs> but guess what? God found a man who was willing to do just that, wasn't he? Abram. You know, Abram's father was a idol worshiper. He was a Gentile, as I said. But he was willing, when God called to him, he was willing to do what these people weren't. Step out in faith and go. He didn't even know where he was going. Totally trusting the Lord to preserve him and to lead him. No wonder he was such a man of faith. From Nimrod to Nebuchadnezzar, from Babel to Belshazzar. Remember him, that arrogant young king, the knight of the handwriting on the wall? From Herod the Great, who tried to murder baby Jesus, to Hitler. (laughs) God has repeatedly demonstrated that it doesn't pay for man to rebel against him. It doesn't pay. He is never, he is never perplexed by what man does. He's never paralyzed by what man does, men's plans. In fact, in response to man's first united cry from Babel, let us go up, we read for the fourth time the words let us. And they're from God himself. He's speaking to himself again. And he says, how foolish, how utterly futile and foolish it is for men to think they can work themselves up to God, to heaven? I don't care how high, whatever the highest building on this planet is. I don't know where it is. Do you know? Anybody know? Is it in Singapore? Where? Oh, yeah, that place. I can't pronounce. But it doesn't matter how high they build their towers. They can never. It's From God's perspective, it's so puny. He laughs in derision, it tells us in Psalm 2. So he looks down at them trying to build their little ziggurat and saying, we're going to climb up and pierce the heavens. (laughs) And he says, Sorry, guys, but no, we have to come down. Let us go down. Let us go down. No matter how tall man tries to make his ladder, the only way man can come into contact with God is if he comes down, right? And he did provide man with the ladder. Jacob's ladder is who? The Lord Jesus Christ is the ladder. But it's, it's just so ridiculous for man to think he can work his way into God's presence. So the Lord came down. It says the Lord came down. What verse is that? I can't, verse 5. And the Lord came down. I guess the Lord came down. Pre-incarnate, Jesus Christ came down. He didn't have to. He could have assessed, and he was assessing the situation from heaven. But it says he came down. He made an assessment of the situation, and here's what it was. He said that... Uh, the people, united in their motive and united in their one language, would accomplish 
they would accomplish their goal of constructing an independent man-centered civilization. Their success, then, would only encourage greater rebellion against him until the messianic line was again endangered, as had occurred before the flood. So he's not concerned about mankind's advancements because he thinks it would become a threat to him. He's concerned because they would become a threat to themselves. It wouldn't have taken long for them to develop the technology, really, that we have today. And they could pretty soon annihilate. Isn't that our fear today? That man could annihilate himself? Fear. There's fear in the world today. North Korea, Iran. I mean, there's a lot going on. So he was more concerned about them. And also, it would become increasingly more difficult for them in their pride and in their self-sufficiency to not see their need for him. You know, we can do this. We can do anything. We can build our way to heaven. We can, we can have a one-world government, the whole thing. They wouldn't need him. They wouldn't need his promised salvation. That's where most of the world is today. They don't, think, they don't see their need for God. So, again, to save humanity from itself, he stepped in and pronounced his verdict. He would confound, (laughs) I love that word, he would confound their languages, their language, their singular language, and make it many languages so they couldn't understand one another. So this is an act of judgment, but again, what is it also? An act of mercy. There you go. God does that all the time. Now, we can almost picture, when he did this, the surprise confusion. Here they are, you know, they're building their little bricks, and they're putting their slime on the bricks, and they're putting them in the kiln, and all of a sudden, somebody says something, you know, throws out a command to somebody else, and they go, what? (laughs) What? Will you stop babbling? What? Can't you speak clearly? What are you saying? And before long, the work had to stop, because nobody could understand each other. They couldn't understand Nimrod, giving directions. I mean... But God was merciful because you know how he divided the languages? In family groups. So at least you could understand your own family, (laughs) but you couldn't understand the other relatives, which would make Thanksgiving dinner so much easier, wouldn't it? (laughs) But very quickly, the, the work came to a halt. And almost immediately, chaos prevailed, and Babel soon soon became, you know what it was initially called? Babel. Babel means gate of the gods. But the name came to be known as Babel. That's an onomatopoeia. It's, that's, a, that's a word known everywhere in the world because it's, it, it sounds like what it is. Babel, 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 Babel. You know, it became known as Babel, which means confusion. And that is so appropriate because the, the whole world system, the Babylonian world system and the Babylonian religious system of this world are utter confusion. They are. They're confusion. Now, God is not the author of confusion, but that doesn't mean he can't use confusion to, to thwart evil. And he did. <laughs> you know that scripture promises one day a return to a singular, pure language? Zephaniah 3.9. One day all men will call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one consent. I don't know when that will be, but I think maybe, maybe will it be in the millennial kingdom? I don't know. Or will it be in the eternal? I, I'm not sure. But one day we'll all be able to communicate, and that will be so great. Most of us only know one language. A few of us are proud if we know two, right? Out of 7,000, that's not too great. (laughs) 
But we had a foretaste of this. There was a foretaste of what it will be like when all human language barriers are eliminated. And the occasion of that foretaste happened when? On the spiritual birthday of the church. On the day of Pentecost. Remember? Acts chapter 2. When the disciples, not only the Lord's apostles, but all the Lord's disciples, even women, could suddenly speak every known language and dialect so that all the people gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost from the diaspora, from different nations that spoke different tongues, could understand what message? The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They could understand it in their own mother tongue and they could respond appropriately. That's a foretaste of what it's going to be like. Well, in the middle of Genesis 11, the focus of the narrative narrows it moves away from mankind in general the nations and the focus now is going to be on it's almost like you said i give up with you guys (laughs) you just keep doing the same thing over and over again i'm going to create a new nation i'm going to put it right in the belly button of the land masses of the earth which is where israel is and i'm going to build that nation and they're going to get the word out about me to the whole world because they're just, the world is going their own way. So really, the rest of the Old Testament focuses on this one nation, Israel. He doesn't return to the Gentile nations until Acts chapter 2. So that was the lesson. And now I want to talk about the origin of Mystery Babylon, the religion. After the Lord's miraculous languages interrupted the city and the tower building projects at Babel, the descendants of Noah in groups based on their new family languages, did disperse, as God told them to do initially. They always, people always wind up having to obey God whether they want to or not, but they did initially disperse to the different lands that are mentioned in uh, chapter 10. Nimrod, however, and his wife, who some accounts say was actually his mother, yuck, married his mother, Her name was Semiramis. They remained in Babel. He wasn't going to leave his kingdom there in Babel in Assyria. So they remained there. And eventually, they did succeed in corrupting the worship of the creator. A mystery in the scripture speaks about a secret that is only understood eventually by divine revelation. For example, the Apostle Paul spoke of the church, the true church, as a mystery because she was unknown to all the Old Testament saints, right? People in the Old Testament didn't know anything about the church. She remained a mystery until she was revealed in the New Testament. Well, the false church, the true church, is the pristine, pure bride. The false church is represented as the great whore, Quite a contrast there. She is also called a mystery because she was not divinely revealed really until Revelation chapter 17. Now the answer, and will you turn to Revelation 17 please? The answer to her identity is found in the second part of her mystery name. And your eyes will be drawn to it right away if you get in that chapter because it's all in capitals. The Lord didn't, or the translators, whoever, didn't want us to miss who the identity of this mystery Babylon was. The identity, she's identified as, you see it, 17.5. She is Babylon the Great. 
the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So who is she? The mystery is revealed. She is Babylon and she is the mother, the originate, the mother of every harlot and abominable system of religion on planet earth. Every one of them, except for Christianity and pure Judaism, she's the mother of all the other ones. Now, to understand the nature of this mystery woman, we need to understand her origin, which began in Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Babel in time became Babylon. We know that. Throughout the scripture, Babylon Babylon refers to more than just the city. It refers to that twofold anti-God world system and not only the commercial Babylonian world system, but the religious anti-God world system. These systems originated in Babel. They originated under the leadership of the man named, let us rebel, Nimrod, who prefigured the end times Antichrist. Babel represents the first attempt by man to unify church and state, the unity of church and state, which has continued throughout human history. So Babel was the first global attempt. It wasn't a very big globe at that time, you know, only those few people there, but it was global because that was all there were. First global attempt to elevate man to God's level by way of the religion of self-effort. Cain did that, but he was an individual. This is a global, first humanistic global effort. So disobeying God's way of salvation, Nimrod did follow in the way of Cain. But he went a step further because Cain actually went to worship the true God. He just did it in the wrong way. Well, Nimrod went a step further because he tried to even replace God himself as the subject of worship and the source of salvation. As I said, he might have first, he might have at first tried to deceive the people that he was talking about God, but in reality, his tower was a means to elevate himself. In fact, even the people wanted to elevate themselves and to make a name for themselves. And the ziggurat, Babel's ziggurat, that building, that pyramid type thing, became the forerunner of towers and high places that were and still are dedicated to false gods and the occult and a vast variety of all kinds of other things. You know, that's why throughout the Old Testament, they're always, God is always trying to get them to tear down the high places, tear down the high places, even steeples on churches that can go back to. We, we put crosses on them, so it's okay. <laughs> but that's where it really originated. Now, the Babel Tower concept does continue to this day in all of the rituals and the good works that religious men vainly imagine will get them to heaven. All kinds of things we can do to work our way into, you know, there'll be a scale, and if I do more good works than bad works, I'll get to heaven. Babel led to mass confusion, which again continues to this day because there are not only some 7,000 languages in the world today, which makes for a very confusing planet, (laughs) but there are also some 4,200 different religions and cults and uh, spirit traditions that exist in the world today, including apostate Christendom. Well, the first stage of Babylonianism began with 
proud, mighty Nimrod. But the second stage originated with his evil wife, Semiramis, maybe his mother too. (laughs) She is responsible for the origin of the so-called Babylonian mysteries. Described as a woman, right? The great harlot. She is the origin, originator of all of this. The secret religious rites used as a means to worship false gods and goddesses and idols that have uh, come out of Babel all began with her. She was perhaps even more proud and more mighty and more of a rebel than her husband. Now, here's what she claimed, and this just will blow you away if you haven't heard it before, but it just, it just, I cannot believe what people will believe. People will believe everything except the truth. But she spread this ridiculous lie, and they fell for it. Talk about naive. But she said that she was miraculously hatched from a large egg that fell from heaven. Okay. (laughs) By self-appointment, she then became the high priestess over the uh, religious system that she she developed, she designed, (laughs) with Satan's assistance, of course. It's interesting to discover, you know, one of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, one of them was the church of Thyatira. Now, that church was messed up, and it always has, they always have their overcomers in each church, but that stage of history in church history got messed up. And guess who had infiltrated them? A woman who Jesus called Jezebel. That wasn't her real name, but she was a Jezebel. You know, Jezebel was into this Babylonian mystery religion. And so she was bringing that stuff into the church. Well, do you know the original name of Thyatira? The original name of that city? Semiramis. Isn't that interesting? This woman, Nimrod's wife, mother, (laughs) mother mother-wife. Well, after Nimrod died, and it was said that he was killed by one of his enemies, and his body was cut into pieces, and it was spread across the various parts of his kingdom. I know that's too much information. But she then, after her husband died, she proclaimed that he had become the sun god. The sun god. And over time, his name, Nimrod, became Baal, Baal, Marduk, Merodach, Nebo, like Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo, Apollo, Hermes, Poseidon, Enki. Those are just some of his different names. As this religion spread across the world, he got different names. So the lying Semiramis, this woman was a seed of Satan because she was a liar. She was probably also a murderer. Maybe she killed Nimrod. I don't know, cut him up in pieces so she could be the chief whatever, but she make, she had another lie because she gave birth too long after Nimrod died. She gave birth, <laughs> it means more than nine months, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. She said that he was supernaturally conceived by a sunbeam from her late husband, Nimrod, the sun god, and therefore Nimrod, he was Nimrod reincarnated, reborn, and he was the promised seed of the woman. 
Hmm. You see, Satan is such a counterfeiter, isn't he? Such a counterfeiter. Guess when Tammuz was born? Hmm. December 25th. Yes, yes, yes. And he was hailed. It was ha- his birth was hailed as a great miracle and was celebrated thereafter, um, you know, as the birthday of the son of the sun god. The son of the sun god. Not only was Tammuz worshipped, so was his mother. In fact, his mother, Semiramis, was worshipped even more than her son. She became known as the queen of heaven and the chief priestess of Babel. She was the one that people would go to, to intercede on their behalf to her husband, sun god, and her son, the sunbeam of the sun god. <laughs> and to honor her, to honor the queen of heaven, whose supposed origin was from a heaven-sent giant egg, the people would get eggs and color them and decorate them. No. Well, supposedly when Tammuz was 40 years old, he was pierced. Pierced? He was killed by a wild boar while he was hunting. So his grieving mother gathered together a group of women to pray and to mourn and to fast for him for 40 days, one day for each day of his year. And then after that 40-day period of time, Simiramis says that she actually went down into the netherworld down there and got her son and resurrected him back to life. So it was Satan's first attempt to promote a false religion of a false savior, as he again will attempt to do with the Antichrist, who has a fatal wound to his head and somehow is miraculously resurrected from the dead. Revelation 13.3. Well, in the years thereafter, in order to commemorate the resurrection of Tammuz from the dead, women would fast and pray and mourn for 40 days. And during those 40 days of mourning, they would make little cakes. And they would put the mystic letter Tau from the Egyptians. I don't know where that came from. But they would put a T, like a cross, on the little cakes for Tammuz. The T was for Tammuz. This is the origin of Lent. This is the origin of hot cross buns. One a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. Neither of which, sorry ladies, neither of which have anything whatsoever at all to do with Jesus Christ or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing to do with them. Now, I don't mind eating a hot cross bun, but it has nothing to do with this mystery, I mean, with Christ. And here, okay, would you turn to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, verse 18. Hope I got this verse right. Listen to what the Lord, I only had a week to prepare this, okay, so if there's mistakes, just forgive me. Listen to what the Lord said through his prophet Jeremiah about this practice. And do you know who was doing this? This weeping for 40 days and making these little hot cross buns with the tea for Tammuz on? Who was doing it? The Assyrians, the Babylonians? No, the Israelites, the Jews. And so God was upset. And through Jeremiah, he says this. He says, Jeremiah 7, 18, the children gather wood. They send the kids out to get the wood. Then the fathers kindle the fire. The women knead the dough. And what do they do with it? They make cakes. Okay, hot cross buns. They make little cakes for the queen of heaven, to the queen of heaven. 
to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. My people are involved in this Babylonian mysticism. And he was furious. You know, throughout the world, you can find idolatrous statues and pictures, you know, icons of a mother holding her child. They were in existence long before Christ, long before Mary and Christ. This Babylonian mother-son cult was what Queen Jezebel, the real Queen Jezebel, introduced to the nation of Israel. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess raised in the religion of Babylonianism. Her father was named Ethbael, Baal, Ethbael. He was a priest of Baal. He was also the king of Tyre. And she was, in, she was brought up in this mystery Babylonian religion, and she introduced it into the worship of the true God when she married that very weak king named Ahab. But you say, well, Jezebel, she worshipped Baal, and she worshipped Ashtaroth. She didn't worship Nimrod and Semiramis. Oh, yes, she did. Because in Phoenician, Nimrod was called Baal. And Semiramis was Ashtaroth, or another name for her, Ishtar. Oh, where do we get the name Easter? You know why I don't like to use Easter? I always say Happy Resurrection Day, because Easter comes from Ishtar, when Ishtar is another name for Semiramis. Influenced, um, she, Jezebel influenced Israel greatly with her Babylonian gods. Now, while you're in the Old Testament, go to Ezekiel. I want you to see this because you're thinking, boy, Catherine's really lost her marbles today. (laughs) Eggs coming from heaven and everything. But I want you to see this for your own eyes. This is in the Bible. Ezekiel 8. Look at verse 14. This is, remember, Ezekiel was in captivity with Daniel. He's a priest and he's in captivity. But the Lord, in, in a vision, takes him in the spirit to Jerusalem and to the temple in Jerusalem to see a flashback in time as to what had been going on in Jerusalem before God took them captive. And here's what he saw. It says, Ezekiel 8, 14, Then he, the Spirit, God, brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, which was toward the north. And behold, what did he see? There sat women weeping for who? Tammuz. See, I'm not making it up. I am not making it up, I promise you. Jeremiah, no wonder this poor guy weep. He was known as the weeping prophet. He warned Israel over and over and over again. Prior to her being taken captive to Babylon, he warned her to turn from her worship of Semiramis, the queen of heaven. Here's what the response of the people was, however, to him, his warnings over and over again. Jeremiah 44. Jeremiah 44, you've got to see this. The people, oh, their rebellion was so willful. That's amazing. And I'm talking about the Jews, (laughs) this new nation, you know. (laughs) Here's what they said to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, uh, to, yeah, Jeremiah 44, look at verse 16. 
They say, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us, Jeremiah, in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee, but we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto who? The queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes. In other words, we've been doing this for years, Jeremiah. You know, get away from here. This has been going on for years in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then, you know, when we offered our offerings to uh, the queen of heaven, we had plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off burning incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes? Cakes to worship her, hot cross buns. We, and then look at verse 25. We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven. Okay, now doesn't it make sense why God took Judah captive to Babylon? Babylon? All right, you want to worship the queen of Babylon, the queen of heaven that originated there? He took them to that place, so finally their eyes were opened to the wickedness of Babylonianism. You know, never, ever, ever, ever again did they turn to the evil of that wicked system, that wicked religious system. In Babylon, they were purged of that their relationship with that mystery religion. Again, it was judgment, but it was also an act of mercy. He needed to get them there, so they had their full of it. Never again have they had a problem with all of that. And even in the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, when the whole world is caught up in that system, once the true church is out of here, all the religions of the world are going to come together with apostate Christianity, Christendom, and it's going to be one world religion under the false prophet. And you know, ironically, the one that will turn on her and devour her in the middle of the tribulation is... The Antichrist. Think about that. He's the one that set it up using Semiramis way back in Babel, but he's the one eventually is going to turn on her, devour her, and in her place set himself up to be worshipped because really this is all about Satan and what has he always wanted. He has wanted mankind to worship him. He's wanted to replace God. Interesting. So, but even in the tribulation, Israel will have no part of that. That's why so many will be martyred. They, they will not turn to the worship of uh, Antichrist or this false religion. So in the religion that developed from this account of a false trinity, he always has this false trinity. In the end times, it's going to be the false trinity of Satan as God the Father, the Antichrist as Christ, and the false prophet as the false Holy Spirit. But he began all this with the false trinity of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. However, the one who was most worshipped of that original three was Semiramis, the mother, the queen of heaven. And this idolatry spread from Babel to all of the nations of the world because it was from Babel that men scattered. In the centuries that followed, as man moved across the lands, they took their worship of the mother-son cult with them, this Babylonian religion. In China, the mother of this cult is called Xing Mu. 
Shing Mu. And she is portrayed, I have pictures, you can look her up on the internet, see pictures of the statues, and she's portrayed holding her child, her son, in her arms, and there are rays of glory, the sunbeams, you know, all around her head. The Germans worship her as Hertha. That's a good German name, isn't it? Hertha. To the Scandinavians, she was Disa, D-I-S-A. The Druids called her Virgo Patitura, and they worship her, worshipped her <clears throat> as the mother of God. In India, she is Devaki, Devaki, or I-S-I, I-S-I, or Isai, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, or Indrani. The Greeks called her Aphrodite. Or Ceres, the Romans called her Venus or Fortuna, and the Egyptians know her as Isis, I-S-I-S. <laughs> Other names for her besides Ashtaroth and Ishtar were Nana, uh-oh, I am so sorry, Nana, N-A-N-A, that was what the Sumerians called her, Sibeli, Sibeli. C-Y-B-E-L-E. That's the, a name for her from the Asians. She's also, she was also known as Diana of the Ephesians. And Nutria, the Etruscans, and Ishtar. And a lot of other names. Some of the names for Tammuz. Krishna. Krishna. Iswara. Dioes. Dioeus. Adonis. Platus, Jupiter, Vishnu, Osiris, Horus. There's just some of them, okay? You know, eventually the headquarters for this religion moved to Pergamos. That's another letter, church letter. And we know this because Jesus talking to them said, I know where you are, where Satan's, Satan's seat is. And then in time, the headquarters for this moved to Rome. Peter, writing from Rome in 1 Peter 5, 3 called that city Babylon, 1 Peter 5.13. We know in Revelation 17.9 that mystery Babylon sits upon a city of seven hills. She's the only city in the world that sits on seven hills. When Emperor Constantine became the Roman emperor, he was the first one to profess Christianity. He decreed tolerance for Christians with it at the Edict of Milan. He determined that he was going to make Christianity more appealing to non-Christians. He thought the ends would justify the means. So he's going to make it appealing. You know, bring the world into the church and then we'll get them in here. And so what he did is he brought this Babylonianism into the church Brought all the statues and the idols and just changed the names. <laughs> so the statues of Ishtar and all those names for Simiramis, the most logical one to call her now is Mary. And the babe in her arm, Jesus. People in time exalted Mary highly, even giving her the title of Queen of Heaven. People were encouraged to pray to her to get to your, her son. Like Jesus, she was even declared to be virgin-born, just not from an egg, <laughs> and to have, had, to have been sinless. She did say she needed a Savior, and she called her own son her Savior, didn't she? But they declare her to be sinless. They even say that Mary bodily resurrected to heaven, and that she, became, she was a perpetual virgin, 
And she even became co-redeemer with Jesus. However, that is an unbiblical Mary. That is not the humble Mary, Jesus' mother, who knew she needed a Savior and that Jesus was the Savior. That is not the Mary of Scripture. You know who that is? Simiramis in disguise with a different name. I grew up, okay, I grew up in this Babylonian system, really, this compromise, okay? Compromise is what it is. And I spent, you know, in church doing the sign of the cross, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, except you know where that originated from? Making a tea for Tammuz. Also Lent, Lent, I celebrated Lent as a child. Couldn't eat meat, you know, all that kind of stuff. That was decreed for the observance of Easter in 519 A.D. There's no precedence for it in the New Testament. None. Now, they try to say, okay, well, we got to come up with a good answer from the Bible, so it's because Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. But that's not. Do you see anybody in the early church celebrating Lent? Any of the apostles? Any of the? No. There's no precedence for it. Lent is actually a carryover from Babylonianism, as are the ideas of the celibacy of monks and nuns, confessions to a priest. Do you know when the light came on for me? Nobody ever told me that the church I grew up in was wrong. Nobody. The scriptures did. And you know what was my great revelation? when the veil was rent when Jesus died. Oh, it was just light bulbs. Oh, what I grew up in, grew up in is wrong. I have access, boldness to come before the throne of God. I don't have to go through a priest, the only ones allowed back in there. Oh. Prayers for the dead. This is all Babylonianism. You know, I've got news for you. I don't care how many candles you light for someone who's dead or prayers or masses you go to, that's not going to help them a bit. Not a bit. Once you're dead, it's too late. There's no such thing as um, the, uh, purgatory. That comes from this Babylonianism. And uh, beads, uh, prayer beads, and the rosary, and the lighting of candles, many other non-Christian practices that have been adopted into so much of Christendom. These practices are an attempt to Christianize Babylonianism. They have more in common with other derivative religions of Babylonianism than with the New Testament church. For example, do you know the Buddhists and the Hindus? They also have a celibate priesthood. They have mystery, and they have darkness, and they have incense burning, and superstition, and a priesthood, and nuns, and sprinkling of holy water, and idols, icons, statues, prayers for the dead, which is also a part of ancestor worship, you know, the Chinese have been doing for years. Many, many, many other Babylonian customs in, appear, that appear in religions all over the world. It's difficult, and I've been in many, many places in this world. It is difficult to go anywhere in the world without being confronted by some semblance of religious Babylonianism. You see it everywhere. And no system, this is what breaks my heart because I have so many relatives that were enslaved in this and that are not in heaven because of this. No system has enslaved more people. 
It has not only brought them into a situation of superstitious ignorance, but it has darkened their understanding so that it is so difficult for them to grasp the simple plan of salvation, which is by grace through faith in Christ alone. None of this other hocus-pocus stuff. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all that babble, you know, get ourselves there. But it's so simple, isn't it? Just believe. Christ did all the work. We have nothing to do except accept it. Well, from Babel, the entire complex of false religions has arisen. You know, all the pantheistic, polytheistic, idolatrous stuff that's everywhere in the world. The tragic thing is that this evil religious system almost destroyed Israel. If the Lord hadn't intervened, right? It would have destroyed Israel. And equally tragic is that Babylonianism has also seriously infiltrated a large portion of Christendom. And that is the truth. And if I hurt anybody's feelings, I'm sorry, but the truth will set you free. It set me free. We don't need a tower to find our way to God. He has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ.